your Bibles with you tonight. You want to turn there. We'll be taking some scripture out of the Gospel according to John in chapter 1, and we'll start reading at verse 1. And uh, you may have picked up on this if you've heard me preach on more than one or two occasions, uh, but I'm very fond of the Gospel according to John. And uh, I think part of it is it was the most difficult one for me to understand, and not that I have it all understood, uh, but it, it's one of those that uh, every time I come to it, I, you know, it's like that, that favorite meal that you can eat any time, you know, no matter, no matter what you feel like, you can always eat that one. That's the way the gospel according to John is to me. And uh, I remember the first time that I ever sat down and read through all of the gospels, you know, and I read Matthew, and of course I grew up going to church and Sunday school and knew a lot of what was said there. I might not have known chapter or verse or even the book that it was in, but I'd heard these stories and, and, and you know, uh, I knew them a lot. Uh, when I sat down and read through the book of Matthew and then I read Mark and I thought, well, Mark's just kind of rehashing what Matthew wrote, you know. There, there was a lot of similarities. Then you get into Luke, like, well, Luke's kind of saying what Matthew and Mark did, but uh, he's added a little more detail to it and all these things. And I later come to understand, you know, kind of the reason that all of those were written. And then you come to the Gospel of John and it's not like those other three. And I remember for a long time, I wondered why, but never bothered to really look into it, why that John's gospel was so different. And uh, I would later find out that the gospel of John was written a good while after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's even, we're pretty sure, most theologians are pretty sure that it was written after most of Paul's epistles had been written. And so it's very likely that John had read at least Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or, you know, he, he may have read some of them. And he sat down and, he, and when he began to write his gospel, and it was written somewhere toward the end of the first century. A good while after Christ was to have ascended back into heaven. Of course, critics of the Bible, they would try to say, well, why did he wait so long to do it? Uh, and, you know, John lived to be a very uh, old man compared to a lot of the rest. Now, he wasn't martyred like the rest of them were, but it wasn't for lack of trying. And that he sat down and, and wrote his gospel, and it's summed up in the 20th chapter of this book, uh, and, and you need not turn there, but it's the 20th chapter in the 31st verse, if, uh, if you want to uh, uh, go to it. But he says that this book was written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and through His name you might have life. That John sat down and he said, I don't need to rehash what Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote, but I want to make sure that when a person begins to read my gospel and my telling of it, that it leaves no room for doubt that He was the Son of God, that He came into this world, that He suffered and bled and died, and then raised again on the third day, and not that He was just a good man, not that He was just somebody to be admired, or an intelligent man but he was the most high God come down into this world lived a life without sin died on the cross and raised on the third day because I can tell you there might be things that another Christian would come along and say brother Jeremiah I don't believe that but if they deny the virgin birth if they deny Jesus Christ was 100% God if they deny that he actually died on the cross and rose on the third day then I can go ahead and tell you that person is something other than a Christian 
Because those things are absolutely necessary for Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Because what He had to do was live a life without sin in order to be an acceptable sacrifice, in order to come down into this world. And the high priest examined Him. Brother Dennis, they couldn't find a thing wrong with Him. They looked Him over. They dogged every step, criticized every word that He said, and they could never find anything wrong. And they they deemed him an acceptable sacrifice and they took him and hung him on a cross and he bled out his blood and they even said foolishly but it was to the will of God let his blood be upon us and upon our children hallelujah for the blood that shed for you and me because when he hung on that cross he did indeed die and then he rose on the third day and it is absolutely necessary that we believe that he was 100% man and 100% God. Some people want to go back and forth on that, that at times he was God and at times he was man. No, he was both in this world. And so John, you'll notice he starts out here in verse 1. And I love how that John echoes what it says in Genesis. In Genesis it says the first three words of the Bible are in the beginning. And John said, sounds like a great place to start. The very beginning. And I believe that he'd sat down and read Genesis and said, well, uh, I believe now that Jesus Christ, he wanted to establish uh, that Jesus was there when everything was made. So notice how he writes it in uh, the Gospel according to John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Uh, There are people out there and I believe there were people at this time when John wrote this down they were running around and trying to say well Jesus was a good teacher Jesus was a fine fella but he wasn't God and John said look I was there I saw who he was and he was there at the beginning when God spoke everything into existence because you'll notice in the book of Genesis that everything that God created with the exception of man himself God spoke into existence. The Word was what got stuff done. And it was the Word that come down into this world that got stuff done for you and me to get us forgiveness for our sins. And so John wanted to establish that. And you know that a lot of times you can sit down and talk to a person of the Islamic faith and they'll be like, yeah, Jesus was a great guy. Jesus was the only sinless prophet. And they'll talk about that. They'll mention His name. Uh, and they'll acknowledge all those things, but John 1 1 uh, and 1 through 3, uh, they have a problem with that uh, because it declares Jesus Christ uh, was God Himself. But I tell you, if He wasn't, then He's of no use to us. The Word made flesh that God sent His Son down into this world for one reason, and that was to bring life back into it. Because what happened? As you think about what happened when God created everything and He looked around at the end of the sixth day. He looked on everything that He created. On all the stars in the sky, the sun and the moon, the earth itself, the plants, uh, the animals that had been created. 
And he looked around, and he, including man, and he said, it's good. Yeah. It's very good. And he had put life into this world. And then in the third chapter, man sinned and made it a world of death. And that was all that was left to man from that point on. That every man that lived, that they were subject unto death. And animals began to die. And death came into this world. And it was a plague upon this world. And when Jesus came into it, if you remember when Jesus is tempted of Satan, when He's in the wilderness, that at one point Satan looks and shows Him all the kingdoms of the world in an instant. And he said, look, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give all this to you because I have power over it. Now, I remember the first time that I read that, I thought Jesus would look at him and say, buddy, that ain't yours. That don't belong to you. But you see, it did. Because Satan is an occupier of unoccupied territory. That people don't give their heart to Satan. He just moves in because there's room that's vacant. But what happens in order to get rid of him He's a squatter and it takes somebody with authority to take him out of the heart. And the only one that has the authority is the Son of the Most High God because what Jesus did was He come into this world and He come and He took the keys of death and hell and the grave and He took back that power from the devil that man had given away. He come that we might have life and that we have it more abundantly. And you'll notice now, verse 4, John says, In him was life. And the life was the light of men. That he essentially establishes, look, you don't have life without him. Uh, That he brings life. Uh, Without him, there is no life. Uh, Jesus, when he was talking to John later on in this, uh, James and John, those sons of thunder, uh, uh, they look at him and say, Jesus, uh, uh, would you have us call down fire and kill these people? Jesus rebuked them harshly. uh, Told them, I didn't come to kill. I come that they might have life uh, and that they have it more abundantly. Uh, And I I tell you what's happening a lot of times in this world uh, is it's like people are like the guy that jumped out of big tall buildings window and they said that somebody on one of the lower floors heard him go by and heard him say well so far so good Everything seems all right. I'm a fallen, but it feels like I'm a flying. And that's the way the people that perish are. They look around at somebody like me and say, No, take the stairs. Trust in what the rock has. Don't trust in the things of the world because the end is death. I was talking to a young man years ago when I was at Marshall University and I, I took a while to reveal to him that I was even a Christian, much less a minister. We were in the seventh floor of Smith Hall down there at Marshall University. It's a big, tall building. And we were in there, and I was talking with him about it. And he literally looked at me and said, You know, Jeremiah, all I'm about is about getting by the easiest way with the least effort possible. And I said, Son, I said, That sounds like a good philosophy right up until you recognize the end of it. And he said, Well, what do you mean? And I said, Well, what's the easiest way out of this building? And he said, Well, the elevator. And I said, No. There's an easier way. It takes a lot less effort than that. He said, what's that? And I said, jump out the window. He looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, from a scientific standpoint, and he knew I was training to be a science teacher. I said, from an energy standpoint, 
That's the least amount of energy you have to expend. The easiest route to take is to jump out that window. I said the problem though is the end result. Everything will be fine right up until you violently encounter the end and the only thing that's left to you is death. And he said, well, that's a good point. And I told him, I said, in order to live, it takes effort. In order to preserve life, you've got to move toward it and put forth some effort. And when Jesus came into this world, most of the effort was on His end. And I think the sorriest thing that modern humanity has done is to look around and say, it's too hard to be saved. Imagine walking up to the cross while Jesus is hanging there in agony. Stripped naked before man, having been recently nearly been beaten to death. Hanging there with his shoulders out of socket, hands full of his beard ripped out, crowned in thorns, having been made fun of, humiliated, hurt in every possible way. Physically, mentally, and emotionally. He'd been left by everybody. They'd quit him. And there he hung. And you walking up and saying, "Ah, that's too hard. I don't want to believe in Him. That's that's too difficult. (laughs) I tell you, the next time that the devil comes and tries to tell you that working for the Lord is too hard, you need to remember what He did on the cross and how hard that was and that all that you ought to give is your best effort. He doesn't even require perfection. And praise be to God that He doesn't because I know of one fella, I know for sure, that wouldn't cut it. I can't speak for the rest of you, but the guy that I look at in the mirror, I've never seen him as a perfect man. But Jesus Christ is my perfect Lord and Savior. And so John established that he had the life that men needed, that men had forfeited uh, when they partook of the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had one rule and they disobeyed it. It's laughable when people look around and say, oh, we got to pass more laws. That'll make the world a better place. Man couldn't cut it with one rule. Uh, why do you think now that all the laws on the books uh, are going to make criminals suddenly behave themselves? Uh, that I tell you, uh, the only thing that can truly uh, transform a person uh, is the transforming word uh, of the Most High God. Uh, and Jesus will come in and put life where only death was. Because He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And you'll notice, he goes on and says in verse 5, And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Now you know, one of the things that I remember as a kid growing up, and I I never really thought anything about it until that I started meeting people that weren't like me. And what I mean by that is I've always had really light colored eyes, really light blue eyes. And I didn't know this until many years later, but usually people with that color eyes are real sensitive to light. Whenever we would get up in the morning when I was a little kid and they'd first turn the light on, well, man, it was painful to me. And it would hurt. I didn't like it. My brothers, they'd get up and just act like it wasn't nothing. Man, I'd be rubbing my eyes and <laughs> whining around there, things I didn't like it. And even when I go outside on a really sunny day, I can't help but sneeze. My son's the same way. They call that photosensitivity. I didn't even know that was a thing. I, I thought everybody was like that until I got to notice and everybody ain't like that. 
And you see though that what happened to me, and it happens sometimes even now, is I get used to the dark. Being in a dark room. And what happens when the light comes on, it's uncomfortable. And that's kind of what John's saying here is that everybody had gotten used to the darkness uh, uh, that they, when the light came along, all they wanted to do was shut it off and shut it down uh, because they didn't understand what it meant. And it's no different than kind of what Job said. You remember he said, I know that my Redeemer lives. He's just out of sight. I believe he was looking, knowing that the sun was getting ready to come up over the horizon. Like that story they said, the man sat up all night wondering where the sun had gone. And then it dawned on him. You know, a lot of times that's the way we are. We wonder, well, where's God at? Well, He's ever there. And He's the light. He's the life. And Jesus come into this world that we might have life. And His light was the life of men. And that's what John is essentially saying. Look, He's everything you need. It's all that you need. My Uncle Willie sings a song, All That I Need. Jesus is all that I need. Now there's people that would hear that and say, Well, you're ridiculous. We know that we need food, shelter, and clothing. And yet you go into the Scriptures and you'll find Him uh, that He provides all three for people. Uh, food, shelter, and clothing. Uh, that He tells His servants, Look, uh, every time that you've ever fed somebody who was hungry, you did it also unto me. Uh, every time that you clothed them when they were naked, uh, you did it unto me. Uh, that He encourages us uh, to be His blessing upon this world. Now, I can tell you that you look around at this world and some of the things that are going on, and I don't know about you all, but I get angry. Oh, yes. And it's a, I, I try to keep it a righteous anger. You know, there's some people say, well, Jesus lost his temper with the money changers. If Jesus lost his temper, then he was out of control and he sinned and he died in vain. But it was a righteous anger, and he oh, was yes. angry at them because they were ripping people off. He said, You've turned my father's house into a den of robbers. And I tell you, now that there's just but a few things that'll really get me really upset real quick. I had a student a while back say something kindly making fun of my last name. And I pulled him aside and I said, son, I know that you're a kid. And I said, and I know you don't understand this. I said, I'd rather you make fun of my first name than my last. And he said, why is that? And I said, my first name is just mine. I said, but my last name is the name of me and a whole lot of people that I love. And it was given to me by inheritance. And I'd rather you spit in my face as to make fun of my name. And he understood then and he apologized. I was very proud of the young man or pleased with him, I guess I should say, that he saw what I was conveying to him. And I told him, I said, my name is important to me. And you see, there's another name that's important to me, and that's the name of the Lord Jesus. And you see that my name, and I've been told before that I come from that good bunch of Williamsons. 
I, I, I didn't know what to make of that the first time that, that I heard it. I, I guess we've got a good reputation. And I'm glad of that. And that's valuable. But I tell you this, I don't want to do anything to make it bad. But more than that, I don't want my life to call somebody to point and say, Jeremiah Williamson might call himself a Christian, but he doesn't serve Christ very well. And he drags his name down. And if that's what it is to be a Christian, then I don't want nothing to do with it. You see, our effort, that's where that, oh, it's too hard, comes in. Oh, yeah. And you look how difficult it was for Jesus. Oh, yeah. Every time that you're tempted to think it's too difficult, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like reading my Bible. I don't feel like witnessing to this person. Just imagine if Jesus had said, no, that's one person too many yeah. when it comes to you. And He said, I'm not going to save them. It's too hard. I don't like them. You ever done that? There, there, there was a person in my life when I was younger that uh, I did not have a favorable relationship with. She disliked me, and there was no love lost between us. She was uh, a person who worked for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. She made it her lot in life to make it difficult for me. Hmm. Caused me a lot of trouble. And I remember, man, I, as a Christian, I viewed her as my enemy. And I remember running around and tell that I was up preaching one night and preaching about love your enemy. And boy, I'm telling you, I stepped on my own toes that night. <laughs> I said, amen, ouch, amen. Because that I realized the Lord was telling me that I needed to love my enemy. <laughs> and then I, I changed my attitude toward them. Uh, and, and, and I began to deal differently with them. I apologized to her uh, and told her I could have uh, done things different uh, and been better. Uh, and I was going to do better. Uh, and, and the relationship uh, got a whole lot better between the two of us. Uh, uh, because the Lord caused me uh, to want to be better uh, and to do better. Uh, and that's that. That life and that light that shines out. Because I imagine prior to that, she'd have probably said, if that guy's a Christian, then he's a bad example, best case scenario. You know, living a quote unquote carnal life, the carnal Christian, that's a big problem. Because even the best case scenario, you're just a bad example of a Christian. The worst case scenario is you have been fooled into thinking you're a Christian yeah. and you're not. And Jesus said there would be those at the last that would come to Him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in Your name? Didn't we do mighty works in Your name? And says He'd look at Him and say, I never knew You. Depart from Me. Can you imagine what a shock and what a surprise. You see, Jesus said to the Pharisees, they got their reward in this world. The worship and the accolades of men you know, sometimes as a Christian, you ain't going to be well liked. Right. People are not going to like what you have to say when you condemn the things that they like to do whenever that you come out against sinful behavior. You know, I, I think it's funny though that a lot of Christians, man, they really want to take a firm stance on certain social issues and then turn right around and be scornful and be covetous and be adulterers. But they, they point at the other sin and say, yeah, but at least I don't do that. Mm. You know, the Ten Commandments, essentially it says if you're guilty of one, 
You're guilty of them all. And a man would probably look around and say, well, what then can I do, Brother Jeremiah? Oh, well, once again, I bring you back to John chapter 1 that you need the light and the life of men. And that's Jesus Christ as a Savior that He saves us from our sin. Now, you'll notice that John goes on in the next verse. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he's squaring Jesus Christ with the prophecy that there would be a precursor, a forerunner. John the Baptist as we would come to know him. And John the Apostle. Now some people get mixed up and think they're the same guy. John the Apostle and John the Baptist were not the same guy. But it says the same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light but was sent to bear witness of that light. That John began his ministry before Jesus did. He was out in the wilderness. He was a peculiar man. People would come out and listen to him preach. Uh, and they resorted to him. Uh, he preached one sermon where he pointed at him and said, You brood of vipers, uh, who warned you from the wrath that is to come? Uh, bring forth works uh, that show that you've repented. Yes. I've never been brave enough to preach a sermon like that. But John the Baptist did. He wasn't afraid of the Pharisees. And he pointed at him and he said, You're a brood of vipers. You're a bunch of people. You've come out to see something. You've come out to criticize. You've come out to just basically cover your base. I think there's a lot of so-called Christians in the world that if they're not careful, that's what they've done. They show up every Sunday to hedge their bet. Just in case there is a God. Just in case there is something to this. And I tell you, they have an academic understanding of this book, but they've never met its author. You know, I've had precious few instances to meet authors. There's a, there's a particular author of a book series that I would like to meet. And I imagine that getting to sit down and talk with the author that wrote the book and ask them questions. And I've seen, I've watched videos of people getting to do that on the internet with certain authors. And how that the author is able to say, well, here's what I meant by that. And it just changed their whole perspective on it. And that's the way the Word of God was for me. I had an academic understanding of it. I've been accused at one time or another of having a photographic memory. I don't believe I do. Especially not now at 42, maybe at 22. But I had a really good academic understanding of the Word of God. I've read it and I've read it again and I understand it academically. But I can tell you, I didn't know the truth of it until I met the author. That's right, amen. And what John the Baptist came to do was he was saying, Look, you've read the book, now go meet the author. You could almost think of him as Jesus' publicist, where he was saying, Look, you're looking at me and saying I'm extraordinary. And he was looking at him and saying, I ain't anything because the one that's going to come after me is prepared before me. I'm not worthy to tie a shoe. He said, I'm not the light, but I'll point you to it. And so that's what he did and he pointed him to it. And it says in verse 9, That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. That Jesus came to the ones that should have known. That's right. That had that same academic understanding. You know, years ago... My Uncle Daniel, he's written several songs over the years and one of my younger cousins was singing a song that my Uncle Daniel had written. And he sung the words and as a little kid would do, you know, sometimes you don't hear it right. Yeah. 
And he sung the wrong words. My Uncle Daniel looked at him and said, that's, that's not how that goes, son. And, and my cousin argued with him until that somebody else told him, son, Uncle Daniel wrote that song. If anybody knows how it goes, it'd be him. He's the author. You imagine arguing with the Most High God about what it's lawful to do on the Sabbath. <laughs> when Jesus looked at him and said, I'm sorry, but man was not made for Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. That they jumped out of the bushes on him all the time and tried to catch him and ensnare him. At another point, they bring a woman caught in adultery to him. And they say, now the law says that we have to kill her, but what say you, Jesus? And Jesus just flips the magnifying glass right around on them and says, that's fine. But let the unsinful man, let the man without sin cast the first stone. And you see, I think it was peer pressure in a positive way what happened there. Because they knew each other's dirty laundry. They looked at that. It's hard to tell a lie in front of your friends when they've been with you everywhere that you've gone. (laughs) And they can look at it and say, you're lying, that never happened, or that didn't happen that way. You're misremembering and Jesus told them, hey, whichever one of you doesn't have any sin, you throw the first one. And then the rest of you just jump right in. And maybe one of them, I don't know, let's say his name is Fred. And Fred's standing there, and he's thinking, you know, I don't have that much sin. I think I can go ahead. And he bends down to get a rock, and his brother John, or friend John beside of him looks at him and goes, really? <laughs> really? Did you forget about last weekend? Yeah, never mind. And they were all condemned. But Jesus didn't come to condemn. He said that very plainly. In the third chapter, in the 16th verse of this very book, it says God sent His Son into this world to save them. They were already condemned. And what Jesus came into this world to do was to save them from their sin. And then when every man leaves one by one, when he looks at himself and he looks and sees his own sin, now they weren't, they weren't repentant of it. They just knew that they couldn't lie in front of their buddies. Yeah. And so they all left. And then looks around, and the sinner is standing with Jesus. Oh, yes. And that's exactly where they need to be. Yes. The sinner needs to be brought to Jesus. And they brought her to Him. And she was condemned when she came to Him. Worthy of death. They were going to kill her. Had they not brought her to Jesus, she'd have already been dead. Yes. And then when they brought her to Jesus, and he looked around and he said, Where are your accusers? And she says, There's none left. And he could have grabbed up a stone and hit her right in the side of the head with it and said, All right, the rest of y'all jump in. But he was life and light, not death and darkness. He looks at her and he says, Then neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now you imagine how she felt. Do you think she said, well, I sure lucked out on that one. See you later, what's your name? I don't even know what your name is and I'm going to go back and do my thing. Or do you think that she said, you know what, I think I'm going to hang around with you. You're you're different. You know, just the same as Peter said when Jesus looked at the twelve and said, will you also go away? Where are we going to go? Maybe she looked around and said, I want to stick with you. 
You have the words to life. I want to hear you out because you turned the Pharisees away. You turned their own lawfulness upon their own head when they wanted to use the law to kill and you turned it around and used it to save a life. What a Savior we have in Jesus that He won't condemn us, but rather He'll save us. He'll clean us up. He'll straighten us out. That's the reason that John said, look, you bring the high places low. Make the low places high. You straighten out the paths. For the Lord, the Son of the Most High God, has come into the world and He's come to save them from their sins. Because you remember what he said when he seen Jesus? When Jesus came to be baptized of him, when John was baptizing there on the other side of the Jordan, that he comes walking up. And John was there with John the Baptist. And John even bears witness of it in this very book. He said that John the Baptist seen him coming, pointed right there and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Because it was the Lamb that had to do it. Nothing else was worthy. You know, I read in the book of the Revelation, and I love the part where that it says this same John that wrote this book. Oh yeah. That they there was nobody, they looked around in the earth and in heaven, and nobody was worthy to open the seals. Oh yeah. And says that John began to weep. And says the angel come to him and told him, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb to do that that you can't do. To do that that no man can do. Worthy is the Lamb to save this world from their sins. And right now, they've got the Lamb available to them. And as I've said many times, when this heart stops beating, you go before the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Yes. Mercy is done when you leave this world. Whether it's the Lord coming back to get His bride or the heart stops beating and we go before Him and we're judged for every idle word that we've spoken. You know, that one right there will get a lot of us. Including the guy standing in front of you. Every idle word that you've ever said. I've said some very foolish things in my life. And if I had to try to go back and remember and erase them out of the book of my life, Brother Dennis, I'd miss a few. I have no doubt. I have no doubt that I'd miss some. But you know, if I go to that book now and I go to looking for the ones I know about and I throw it to that page of that particular date, something that I can remember, it'll be blotted out. Oh, yeah. Blotted out by the blood of the Lamb. Uh, down there in that book uh, that tells the story of Jeremiah Williamson. Uh, that the cuss words he said when he was a little boy. Uh, blotted out. Uh, uh, that the vile things that he thought and done as a teenager. Uh, blotted out. Uh, uh, that the worst things uh, that are known only to me and God. Oh, yeah. Blotted out. Dealt with by the Lamb who taketh away the sin of the world. You know, all our job really is as Christians is to say, behold the Lamb of God. Get him to Jesus. Getting the sinner to Jesus. We don't need to be marketers. We don't need to be hucksters and tricksters. We don't need to be academics. A lot of people think in order to get behind this pulpit uh, uh, that you've got to have some kind of a degree. Uh, You have to have some kind of special gift uh, or something like that. Uh, What you have to be is called. Uh, What you have to be is chosen. Uh, What you have to be uh, is somebody willing uh, to do the work that God has laid out for you. Because 
in the latter part of this, and we're running short of time, but in the latter part of this same book, Jesus literally walked up to people and said, Come and follow me. Oh, yes. And they did. Yeah. That was it. And that's what he said to me Come and follow me. And I've been trying to follow him, but you know, I get off track. I get distracted. I'm like my little kids were. We'd be walking somewhere. I'd get down and get their little hand. And I'd be gripping their hand. They wouldn't be gripping mine. I'd say anybody that's ever held a little kid's hand knows what that's like. Especially when you're wanting to go this way and they're wanting to go some other direction. And they'll go to tugging and you'll hang on. Now quit now. Stay with me. And they go to wanting to get off on another path. But we're not that different in our daily walk. It's real easy for us to look around and see that shiny sinful thing over there and run toward it. And I can tell you, a few times I'd let my kid go and say, now you stay right next to me. Okay. Now I didn't say, now you stay right next to me until you see something that's real interesting to you. You see a stranger with some candy. You stay right next to me. And then when they would run off, did I just look around and say, well, (laughs) that foolish kid... I guess I won't be seeing them no more. No, that's ridiculous. You see, people think of God that way. Uh-huh. But rather, I'd go over there, and if I had to, I'd get them by the scruff of the neck. And I'd drag them back, whether they liked it or not. And trust me, God loves us enough oh, yes. to straighten us out. Oh, yes. He loves us enough, though, that if we keep resisting Him, He'll say, all right, not my will, but thine. Yes. It's what you want. He loves us enough to give us free will. Yes. But you see, He come that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly, yes. but He ain't yes. going to force it on anybody. That none of this, you'll, you'll find nowhere here in, contained in the Gospels where that Jesus says, you'll take me into your life or else. Right. But he does say, look, if you don't, you're already condemned. Yes. You're already dead. If you want to live, come to me. That woman that was taken in the very act of adultery that I mentioned a moment ago, she come to him dead. She was going to die. And she left him alive. Yes. That's what he does. It's not very often that you read of in this book that anybody came to Jesus and left sorrowful. There's but only one that I can readily think of, maybe two, in which that there was a rich young man. Come to him and ask him, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what says the law? And he says, well, I've kept the law from my youth up. And Jesus said, well, then do this to be perfect. And he said, give, get rid of all this stuff that you have. Give it to the poor, take up your cross, and follow me. And it says that he left. He left sorrowful because he had a lot of stuff. And then Jesus said, how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples marveled. And then he clarified and he said, it's hard for somebody who trusts in the riches. And that's what that man did. He thought that was the most important thing to him. The most important thing in the world. And I can tell you this though, Jesus himself said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul at the expense of his own soul. Brothers and sisters, our souls and the souls of our loved ones are what's at stake. 
And no, we can't save them. I can tell you there's a few. There's a few that I have been more than a little tempted to grab by the scruff of the neck and hog toss up to the altar. Tell them, get up there and give your heart to the Lord. That thou sit and hang on to the pew and cry and say they're going to do better and then go right back to the world not willing to commit. And I'm thinking, you are playing fast and loose with eternity. And I can tell you, this is not what we're called to do. We're called to get them to Jesus. We can't clean them up and they can't clean themselves up. But if we get the sinner to Christ, He will straighten them out. He will forgive them. He will transform them in a way that we can't. You know, as a teacher, and I've thought about this a lot, you know, I stand up before a, a, a group of children that I, uh, the thing that astonished me the most when I first started teaching, especially when I, it was only me in the classroom. I wasn't a student teacher or anything like that. A student teaching is way different than being a regular teacher. Student teacher, you're the shiny new toy and they love you, which my students all typically like me. But how hostile some of them are to you trying to teach them something that could benefit them. I had a classroom full of 8th graders over there at Fort Gay. And they, these are, these are the quote-unquote redneck kids. They're the ones that do all the hunting and fishing and all those things. One rode a four-wheeler to school. This was the kind of school that that place was. They wore boots and camo every day. Wanted to wear their hats all the time. They'd still occasionally set foot outside. Unlike where I'm at now where they're city kids and they want to sit indoors all day. But I was talking with these kids and I was teaching them about how to tie knots. And I'm telling you some of them, now, now there were several of them was like, this is really good to know, Mr. Williamson. And I said, well, I'm glad. And I showed them several different ones. I showed them ones that were useful to me and had always had an interest. And I told them, this is physics. It's friction and, and, and it's leverage and all these things. But there was a couple of them, man, that they just fought me the whole way. And I asked one of them. I said, what do you want to do for a living? He said, I want to work for Asplund. I want to be a tree climber. <laughs> and I said, son, if anybody ought to be paying attention to how to tie some of these knots, it's you. Why do you say that? And I said, talk to a tree climber. Yes. I said, they need to know how to tie knots. Their life yes. and property depends on it. But you know, that's the way some people approach the gospel. Yes. They'll make plans 50 years from now, never once considering eternity. Hmm. And they need Jesus more than they need the next breath of air. And that, that, it, it's a hostile audience sometimes. But that doesn't make this word any less true or any less powerful. And I tell you tonight, when you talk to those that are lost, you see, all you're called to do is to show them the light. Yes. That's it. Behold the Lamb of God. Yeah. We can't look at Him and say, look, follow me and I'll get you to heaven. <laughs> no. No. I'll let you down. I'll mess up. I can't save you. But I know a man. Yeah. Oh. I know a man who can. Oh, yeah. I know a man who hung on a cross for you. I didn't. And I won't. Because it wouldn't be any good if I did. Right. You know, I would die for my own children. But every drop of my blood, it's not worthy to save them of their sins. Because mine is tainted with sin. But you see why I say that it's important that somebody doesn't deny the virgin birth of Christ? 
It's because that he was not born out of the will of the flesh, but out of the will of God. There's no sin attached to Christ. He is a sinless, spotless lamb. The lamb of God. And when John sat down to write his gospel, oh, I wish I had time to go a lot further into it. But I can tell you it all culminates in that verse I mentioned earlier in chapter 20, verse 31. John said, look, I sat down and wrote this that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So that nobody would look around and say, well, he's a pretty good guy. No, he was so much more than that. There are pretty good guys all over the place. Oh, he was a great teacher. There are great teachers all over the place. Oh, he was a prophet. There had been lots of prophets. Oh, he was a priest. There had been lots of priests. Oh, he was a king. There had been lots of kings. But what he is, is prophet, priest, and king. He's the son of the Most High God. He is God in the flesh. And if he's not that, then close your Bible, go home and enjoy what little bit of life you have left because there's no hope. That's it. If he's not that, then he's useless to us. And you may say, Brother Jeremiah, how does a person get to the point to where they believe that? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Holy Spirit reveals the truth. Oh, yeah. He brings forth the evidence that we need. We step out on faith and say, I want to believe, Lord. And the Holy Spirit comes along and says, Well, here is what you need. And He confirms it and brings the truth to us. I can't impart truth to you. I can tell you about this book all day. But I can't make you believe it. But the Holy Spirit, He's the one that brings the truth. He's the one that opens the blind eyes. And all we have to do is get them to Christ. And that's it. And if they'll give Christ a chance in their life, they'll find that it'll be far better than they could have ever possibly I hope that you've been blessed by this message. If you need the altar, consider it open.